Talk 1110-993 WBT, hour number two underway. We spent a lot of time over the last few days, well, during election week, we have spent a lot of time looking at the national picture because apparently uh, there are too many states that do not know how to run elections properly. Uh, so we haven't really gotten around to dissecting what all went down here in North Carolina. So I want to welcome back to the program Stephen Wiley, not the magician. Uh, he is actually, although maybe kind of, sort of, he's the uh, he's the caucus director for the North Carolina House Republican Caucus. And welcome back, Stephen. How are you? Hey, Pete. Thank you. I, I'm doing pretty well. Definitely uh, a lot less tired than I was last week when you had me on. Right. <laughs> so you've gotten uh, to catch up on some sleep. And uh, were there any races in North Carolina that dragged on? I think was there one in in the in Cabarrus County, the the Diamond Stanton Williams case, uh, uh, race. Yeah, we still have two that um, where the, um, the 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 candidates have not conceded because they are close to being within the recount margin. So, Representative Brian Farkas, who's the incumbent Democrat out in Pitt County, he's after election day was down about 1.6%. Um, Brian Echeverria up in Cabarrus County was down about 1.5%. So when the county's canvas uh, tomorrow morning, both could theoretically end up within the 1% margin of error for um, or 1% margin for a recount request. But we'll just have to see once the, um, once the canvas completes tomorrow. Okay. But, and so, Without any kind of shift in those numbers, it appears that the Republicans will not be gaining a majority or a supermajority, I should say, a supermajority in the House. They achieved that in the Senate this time, but they did not get it in the House. And that's kind of where you thought it was going to go last week, right? Yeah, we, we believe that we were probably locked into the 71, barring something really um, bizarre happening in either of those seats, but just as the numbers have come in. It doesn't appear like there's been any kind of large influx of late arriving absentee ballots or enough provisional ballots to swing the either of those elections. All right. So uh, you you wrote it. Uh, is this? It's not Substack. It's Medium dot com. And you wrote about what happened in the House, and uh, you gave uh, one, two, three, four, what five big takeaways here. And um, so let's go through them. Like under the heading, you say most politics are national, but down ballot margins are local. What does that mean? Yeah, so it, there's this axiom where it says all politics are local. And I, I think as um, more and more people are paying attention to national politics as far as entertainment value, because it's just that's what it's turned into for a lot of folks, but also just the democratization of, of media and through social media and different platforms. Um, the, these national issues are becoming more important in the down ballot races. And so we do still have um, some examples where we're going to be able to perform at a higher or significantly lower rate uh, than the top of the ticket. But those really like have, there has to be some kind of really hot local issue or some kind of bombshell that drops um, for more than one or two point difference between what the top of the ticket gets in a given area versus what folks down the towards the bottom of the ticket get. So you, you describe this as uh, the national mood determining a down ballot candidates floor and ceiling, right? So, yeah. so if you've got, and so how it relates to, because everything has to be viewed through the prism of Donald Trump, right? How does this, how does this uh, Trump's uh, effect has Trump affect the national or the, the North Carolina races? 
they, he had a, a smaller impact in North Carolina than he did in other states, in large part, I believe, because the kind of like the the avatar of Trump in North Carolina this cycle was Ted Budd. Mm-hmm. And Ted Budd is a very normal, down to earth person, and he's not um, he's not Doctor Oz, he's not Doug Mastriano, he's not Blake Masters or Kerry Lake for that matter. Um, he's not certainly not Herschel Walker. So. They're just, you know, when you're looking at the the post-election analysis by all these national groups, they almost never mention Ted Buttershare Beasley, even though it was one of the closer races nationally and a state that's been very hotly contested for, for decades now. And that's just because it would... Ted Budd was the Trump candidate, but he's not a Trumpy candidate, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Or like he's not, you know, he, he's not Herschel Walker who's paying for abortions for, for women. Like he's not a controversial figure or anything like that. So that, that was really like the, one of the best things for North Carolina Republicans. This cycle was that Ted Budd did not become a lightning rod the way some of these other candidates did. Because that would have the effect on your state house races. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you, uh, you then have a, a third bullet point. The issue sets mattered, and most, including you, got it wrong. So really, how can we trust anything you're saying right now? If you got, <laughs> no, you got. It. Right. So abortion was not as much of an issue as the media would have us believe. I have said for years the media uh, elections are about what media make them, and uh, I think they tried to, and to a large extent were successful. I think nationally in making uh, abortion a central issue, particularly among. Democrats and maybe even in the suburban women voter demographic. So am I wrong on that? In North Carolina, again, like we were, we were a unique state in that we weren't getting the national attention the way the other, other states were. But also, just Ted Budd didn't say anything controversial. Um, and so it, just, it didn't drive the story as much as it did in other places. Um, you, it, just, it just wasn't really a big issue and even in states where um, that are similar, like similarly like purple states or light red or even light blue states, um, you see like the overriding issue, uh, all things being equal, was still the economy. Um, Arizona is a really great example of this, where um, Carrie Lake and Blake Masters are unique candidates, um, and um, like or dislike them, you would never say that either of them are you know, boring Republicans, but in six of the nine congressional districts that the Repo- you know, Republicans won, six of those nine in Arizona, and it was largely with, for the most part, pretty normal Republicans. And so the, the voters said on election night, um, if, it, if the Republican is a pretty normal person, economy is still the number one issue for us. We'd rather just have boring competence in office right now. Yeah. Uh, and so and where, it became, where it became an issue was where we didn't have a quote unquote normal Republican. Um, and that was, that was a pretty big deal. I mean, here in the Raleigh media market where I am, um, Bo Hines's um, comments over, you know, quote, social issues was a big deal, um, both in the primary and in the general election. And yeah, I think you saw an impact of just what those, those Wake County vote totals um, were pretty substantially against him more so than they were against other Republicans uh, in those areas. So, it did have an impact, but it was it was still largely contained to each individual campaign. Right, I, and I wonder if the uh, it, 
the fact that inflation, the economy, gas prices, grocery prices, that these things directly impact, this is, you know, people seeing this for themselves and it's harder to tell them that they're not seeing. It's harder to gaslight people when they're interacting with this stuff every single day. They see the, the I mean, I, I put it up on my Twitter feed the other day. We uh, just redid the budget last weekend and my gas budget in our household budget went up 30% since May, six months ago. It's a 30% increase in gas. So uh, I don't think you can hide that from people despite, uh, you know, campaign's best efforts to say, no, 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 it's not about the economy. It's about abortion. Um, right. But they did try. <laughs> um, yeah. What else we got? Uh, the uh, uh, voters decided much later than they have recently. What does that mean? Right. So, um, a lot of times, with just with how inundated voters are with information, especially you know, think about how early presidential primaries begin. I mean, um, Trump announced uh, earlier this week that he's running for president again in 2024 a week after the 2022 election. And especially in presidential years, folks already know by the time in North Carolina, by the time they, they vote early, what they're going to do. Like most of your, most in 2020, most of our undecided had already voted by the end of the first full week of early voting. Uh, and you have a pretty solid idea of how things are going to shake out by mid October. Um, and that was certainly the case um, in 16 and, and in 18 as well. And though what happened this cycle was just the national brand of both parties stinks. Uh, And people don't really love the Republican or the Democratic Party in the suburbs. And it was a lot of, well, who who individually is going to be able to cut through um, to those lukewarm, uh, lukewarm voters? And there's a lot of lukewarm voters that didn't want to like commit one way or another to either party. And so we had uh, people deciding at the very, very end, uh, this go around. And it was probably, probably the latest we've had people deciding in close to a decade in North Carolina. Hmm. Stephen Wiley, uh, basically the candidate recruiter and campaign manager for all of the uh, Republican House uh, candidates in the North Carolina House. Uh, And you write uh, at this piece in the end, the House GOP had one of the best nights for Republicans in the entire nation, flipping seven seats, winning 10 of the 11 Biden seats needed to secure a supermajority. You came one uh, one seat short, one race short. But congratulations. Otherwise, uh, solid performance, sir. Yeah, well, thank you, and uh, thanks again for having me back. Absolutely, and uh, a good job for all the candidates that you brought in, and uh, looked, uh, look forward to talking with you in the future. I don't think we can play this song. It's not from Charlotte. Talk 1110-993-WBT. Yeah, I mean, that's like out of Texas right there. That's <clears throat> Oh, come now, I, I kid Scott. Pete, uh, oh, sorry, I'm just, I was reading the wrong email. My bad, I already read that one. I don't need to say that. I'm not, I don't just say my name out loud and like just scream my name like that for no reason. I thought I was reading an email that was brand new, but I was wrong. I was mistaken. Twice in one show now. All righty, so... Stephen Wiley, thanks again uh, to Stephen for uh, jumping on here and uh, going over this piece. It's a pretty lengthy piece. You can uh, read it at medium.com. It's in my prep sheet. 
uh, pack as well. Uh, a week removed from Election Day 2022. And nationally, it was an unusual midterm, but a little more conventional here in North Carolina. And he says, as of this writing nationally, Republicans only won 177 Biden seats in state legislatures, with 10 of them having won by the North Carolina House GOP candidates or just over 5%. And that means the North Carolina House Republican performance makes it the one of the top performing Republican House caucuses across America. Only the Florida House GOP won more seats that went for Biden. That's how they measure this stuff, right? So you say, okay, you got a district here. This seat went for Biden last time. Can you flip it? And only one state saw more flips for Republicans than us, and it was Florida. So Stephen Wiley, yeah, he's probably, someone's going to come along and someone's going to give him a job somewhere else. He's been, I mean, he's been doing a lot of work on this for years now, and he has helped to, uh, you know, to continue to build and preserve the Republican majority in the North Carolina House. I believe the fellow that did it, I think the guy uh, over in the Senate is Nathan Babcock. I think that's, I think that's him. Um, at any rate, a couple of the, the highlights here, and he mentioned this in, in our discussion. Some of the stuff I find uh, intriguing for the most part, the national mood is going to determine a down-ballot candidate's floor and ceiling. You know, he, he talked a little bit about this, that there is some wiggle room in there, but generally speaking, as he said, the brand of each of the national parties stink. I mean, they just, they stink. This is why, like in North Carolina, as an unaffiliated voter, I can tell you there is an advantage to not being a registered member of either of the parties, in that I can vote in either primary that I choose, but also I don't ever feel the need to defend blindly out of some sense of party loyalty somebody who does something stupid. I don't feel the need to have to do that. And a lot of people find themselves kind of boxed in. It creates this sort of psychological defensiveness, you know? It's understandable. It happens on both sides, but th- there is an advantage to not being uh, to not being a party member is that you could say, look, I don't agree with that guy. It's easier to get distance there. Um, if the uh, or This election, rather, it appears the biggest overperformance in target seats were more than the standard 1%, with some candidates running 2.5% or more ahead of Ted Budd. So because we had a statewide election, we had a couple of them, right, for the judicial races as well, but Ted Budd was at the top, and did you have lower... Uh, down-ballot races where Republicans overperformed Ted Budd in his margin of victory. That indicates ticket splitting is occurring, down-ballot, right? That indicates someone, if Ted Budd wins by 2.5% over Sherry Beasley and down-ballot, I beat you know Bernie by four points, well, that means I overperformed Ted Budd. That means there were people who voted for me and I'm in the same party as Bud, and then they went and voted for Beasley, or they didn't vote at all. And as we were kind of talking about yesterday with how you vote and whether you abstain from a certain race, this is what I mean. Candidates and campaigns and the consultants and the people whose job it is to win these races, they know this. They know this. They look at the votes. They look at the turnout. They look at ballot roll-off and erosion. They, they see, okay, who's, who's splitting tickets why are they splitting tickets? How did Pete overperform Bud? How did that happen, right? 
I mean, aside from the fact that I'm pretty awesome. I mean, aside from that. <laughs> the, success, the success North Carolina House Republicans had in 2020 of netting four seats was driven by the ability of our candidates to retain votes despite the usual drop-off as voters move down a ballot. That's ballot roll-off or erosion. It would appear many North Carolina House Republican candidates in target seats retained votes or were able to have crossover votes from Sherry Beasley. That's a pretty big deal. So people were not interested in sending Bud to the U.S. Senate, but then they turned around and voted for local Republican House members. Now, to be fair, to be clear, ticket splitting is getting rarer, more rare. It's becoming more and more rare. Not as frequent as it used to be. People used to ticket split a lot more than they do now, but it still does occur in North Carolina particularly. Um, I did get a tweet regarding this, the big kerfuffle yesterday over the uh, <laughs> over me saying I abstained from certain races and people were mad and say, oh, you don't have any right to complain about the outcome and you have to vote and all of this stuff. And I did get... Uh, where is it? I did get a very nice message. Where is it? Where did, here it is from uh, Christina, who said, Pete, I love the way you defended your right to vote for or not vote for whomever you want. Your vote is yours. Exactly. I would say more, but it's a tweet. Right. Okay. Well, well you're limited in the characters you can use. Oh, use this opportunity. Go down to the Charlotte Convention Center today, 3 o'clock. Make some plans now. Go on early because you got Brett Winderbull. He's going to be down there doing his show from the Charlotte Auto Show at the Convention Center for the 29th year. Charlotte Auto Show reconvenes, and Brett is there. He was there last year. Brett's a car guy. He loves the cars. And there are a ton of cars there. And I'm not a car guy, but they were really cool. I will tell you. They're pretty cool. Chevy's offering test drives on-site. And uh, you can also check out the luxury cars, the new brands, the new makes and models, all that stuff. Dozens of manufacturers. And, by the way, today is Hero Day. Free entry with ID. If you are active duty military or retiree, veteran, um, first responders, uh, folks in the uh, medical profession, teachers as well, show an ID. Get in for free. Hero Day at the Charlotte Auto Show right now at the Charlotte Convention Center. And say hi to Brett. Also... Your brand matters, and the top of the ticket's brand matters, too. Wiley says, Bud ran a boring campaign, quote-unquote boring campaign. And I do wonder, by the way, if we're going to see more of that in the future. For example, no debates anymore, because that was that's becoming more and more prevalent, right? Katie Hobbs just won over Kerry Lake in Arizona, and she refused to do a debate, too. So, uh, Sherry Beasley, she, right? She didn't debate in her primary. So, uh, are they going away? There's a lot of downside to debating and very little upside, so really, why bother? Um, but Wiley says, to Ted Budd's credit, boring is good. A better way to describe Ted Budd is normal. And in a year where there were a lot of candidates who were anything but normal, Budd never made national news for any embarrassing gaffes. This goes to something that I uh, told uh, uh, before I uh, came back to Charlotte. I was invited to speak to the Buncombe County Republican Women's uh, Club and... Or sorry, no, the Buncombe County GOP, I believe it was. At any rate, um, and one of the things I said, as an unaffiliated voter, if I'm going to lend my support to you, I'm going to vote for you, I would prefer not to be embarrassed. Really, I would prefer, like, that's, 
A lot of unaffiliated voters don't want to be embarrassed by the votes that they cast. They don't want to have to acknowledge that I voted for somebody and then they did something stupid. It's the only advice I can give parties. Try not to try not to put people up that are going to embarrass swing voters. Hey, a couple of days from now, Tuesday, Carolina Panthers and the Charlotte FC, the football club, is going to be hosting their annual tree lighting festival presented by Atrium Health. It's going to be at Mint Street and Graham Street right outside of B of A Stadium. Starts at 5. The event is free, but you're going to need tickets to get in, but they're free. Um, they got all sorts of stuff, photo booths, letter writing. Santa's going to be there. You can make fleece blankets and holiday cards for the patients that are at the Levine Children's Hospital. So a really great cause. So if you have some time, Tuesday, starting at 5, head on down uh, for the annual Tree Lighting Festival. Oh, and yeah, they're going to light the Christmas tree. So there's that too. Um, Michael says, Pete, you have done a great job explaining downvoting erosion. Well, thank you. How do parties interpret voting? Or sorry, how do parties interpret voting all one party and third party for senator? Same as a no vote or look at qualities of third party candidates. Okay, so in the, uh, for example, the U.S. Senate race here in North Carolina, you had two different candidates that were non-Republican or Democrat, right? You had Shannon Bray and you had uh, Michael, or uh, sorry, Matthew Ho from the Libertarian and Green parties, respectively. So you would see the total number of votes cast in that top race. And then you would see the next race down were the judicial races, right? You had uh, statewide Supreme Court races. And there, because it's a midterm election, you don't see the kind of uh, ballot roll off that you normally see in a presidential race, because a lot of people go into a presidential race that are not your, your A voters. These are B voters. These are folks that show up once every four years, and that's it. And so they'll go in, they'll cast a ballot for president, and I think in 24, we're not going, I don't believe we're going to have, yeah, I don't think we have a Senate race up in 24, but um, yeah, because Tillis just was in two years ago, yeah, yeah, so we're not going to have a Senate race. So now you will have races for governor and that sort of thing, so they'll look at those those top races, top of ticket races, and they'll say, okay, let's say the presidential race got a total of in North Carolina, I think it's uh, like 6 million, 5 million registered voters, something like that. So you, you got, let's say 5 million registered voters. And of those say, you know, 3 million voted, you split them and it's a really close election. So one and a half and one and a half between the top two president and, and uh, Democrat Republican presidential candidates. Now, if there's a libertarian in there, you can total all of those up and get that number. The next race down, if you see a lot of drop off, then you're going to say, okay, there aren't as many people voting any longer. What's the percentage spread? And if you see people start to overperform in those down-ballot races, then you're going to know problems with the people up above you on the ballot. People didn't want to vote in that race. People voted against the other person in that race or against the, uh, or against the party in that race. It's the total aggregate numbers and the percentages that you pull 
compared to different races. I hope that makes sense. But yes, they can determine roughly, you know, how many people voted for the Libertarian, how many people voted for the Green Party. They know that because those are the vote totals. But they know then how many people in that as a percentage may not have voted in the lower ballot races because those percentages kind of hold unless there are no Libertarians or Green Party people down on the whatever, down, down ballot, then you can see the votes move, especially if there's in a midterm like this one, there's not a lot of roll-off. Not a lot of pe- people who are going to vote in midterm elections are voting in almost all of the races. That's what generally happens because they, these are your A voters. These are people that show up and vote in primaries. They vote in midterms, right? These are, these are people that usually are hardcore, the angries, you know? Okay. Um, this is from Charlotte Observer, written by Dawn Vaughn, actually from the News and Observer, McClatchy. Senate Leader Phil Berger and House Speaker Tim Moore, they did a press conference after the election, and uh, they spoke to uh, reporters. Berger noted that he has previously told reporters where he stands on abortion, because, of course, this is the first topic that the reporters ask about. It's abortion, because elections are about what media make them, and the media really, 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 really care about abortion and whether or not they're going to do restrictions. Berger said over the summer that he thinks abortion should be restricted after the first trimester, which ends at 13 weeks of pregnancy, she writes. Quote, we have still not had a conversation with our members, particularly with our new members. We'll see where the caucus is and we'll see what's possible for us to do, if anything, Berger said. North Carolina abortion law currently restricts abortion after 20 weeks. 20 weeks. That's halfway through the pregnancy. Moore has previously told reporters he favors earlier restrictions, for example, after a heartbeat can be detected. You'll recall there was a, a bill related to this that passed the uh, that passed the House, and Demo- a couple of Democrats actually voted with the Republicans on this bill. So this could be something that we see come back and maybe survive a veto override. Next up, regulating how schools teach about race and LGBTQ issues. Again, note the framing, right? They frame it as race and LGBTQ issues. No, they're talking about sex. This is the problem. Reporters, editors, you're talking about sex with kindergartners and one and uh, two uh, first and second graders. And parents don't like that. They don't. They're not sending their kids to school to have you... Talk to them about sex when they're six years old. That's not appropriate. And I can't believe I need to say this. The answer to a child that asks you anything that has to do with sex, the answer is, I don't talk about this stuff with you. That's generally the answer. Now, unless they're saying they're being abused or something like that. They have no right to know who you're stooping. They don't. The kid, you know, stop seeking validation for your lifestyle among first and second graders. I cannot believe I have to say this. Okay. Previous legislation that would regulate how public schools teach about race and LGBTQ issues did not become law because Cooper vetoed an anti-critical race theory bill and a parent's bill of rights failed to pass both chambers. Phil Berger in the Senate said legislation about those issues would return. He said he would not get into specifics about what a bill might look like, but that there is support for it. Quote, I think parents have made it clear they're not happy with some of the things that are going on in our public schools. A number of members who supported the Parents' Bill of Rights that the Senate passed are coming back, and I suspect there will be good support for moving forward on that. 
The Parents' Bill of Rights would have required schools to inform parents if their kid has changed their pronouns. I'm sorry, are schools supposed to be hiding mental conditions from the parents, medical conditions from the parents, physical conditions from the parents? Are they supposed to be doing that? Is that what schools are supposed to do? And don't give me the thing, oh, they don't want to be abused at home. You guys are the ones that put it, you're the one that put it into the category of, of mental health and medical conditions. You do not have the right to withhold medical information about a par- about a kid from its parent. You don't. You're supposed to report that. There's a your child is going through something of a medical nature, right? They have a they have a healthcare issue. You don't get to hide that from the parents. You don't know better than the parents. It's their kid, not yours. Again, I don't know why I feel the need. I don't know why do I have to say this. The fact that I even have to say this, I cannot believe that we as a society have gotten to this point where you have to say these things. News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. Got a direct message here from Christian who says, I split ticketed pretty hard. I voted for Ted Budd and the Republican House candidate. I liked how Budd wasn't crazy. <laughs> that is always a plus. Yes, usually when <laughs> looking to put people into public office where they shall wield power, uh, it's always a benefit to not be nuts. Um, the uh, Parents' Bill of Rights that the, uh, the House didn't get passed last time around was so objectionable, you know, because... It would require schools to inform parents if the students started changing their pronouns without telling the parents. They have to tell the parents, hey, your kid is exhibiting some of the symptoms of gender dysphoria, right? They're obviously going through some stuff. Oh, yeah, and I'm not even I'm not getting into the transgender issue today here, but I, like for folks who aren't aware of my process, I build topics over the course of days, sometimes weeks. I build a topic. I add stories to them as I go. And by the time I get about four or five stories into a single topic or issue, then I'll kind of put them all together and bring them. Not in all cases. Sometimes, you know, those are those are for the more evergreen types of topics. And that's one of them. But there was just a report that came out out of Britain that said most gender dysphoria, it's, it's transient. It's a phase. It goes away. There's going to be a lot of lawsuits coming down the pike. Anyway, um, so this was the Parents' Bill of Rights, that, that schools cannot hide medical conditions from parents, number one. Um, it would also, as the uh, News and Observer calls it, it would have banned instruction or curriculum about LGBTQ issues in K through 3. LGBTQ, why are you talking to first graders, kindergartners, first graders, second, third? Why are you talking to them about, quote, LGBTQ issues? Do you talk about, you know, the sex mommy and daddy are having every night when you go to bed? Like, are you telling the kids this stuff? Are you talking about your sex lives to your first graders? What? Why do we even need to address this? Well, because people recognize that in our education system, particularly young children, right, their, their brains are sponges. And so they are utilizing their position in order to implant, shall we say, Certain ideas, right? 
This is look. This isn't new. Everybody always talks about this being the you got to teach the kids young. You got to and they're they're sponges. They absorb all the absorb all the information. And uh, if they don't learn to read by third grade, they're going to be in prison by uh, twenty one. Right. So all of these things start in early childhood, and they know this. They've been preaching it to us. They've been saying this, and so now they want to be able to proselytize to the K through three kids. So this way they they change the culture. Now, you can argue that is good or bad, that needs to happen or not. But I would submit that's not your responsibility as a teacher. That is not your job, especially when you can't even do the job you're hired for well, right? Especially if you got, you know, 60, 70 percent of the kids not at grade level in like anything. Yeah, no, sorry. You don't get to start teaching pronouns and LGBTQ plus issues a.k.a. sex, you don't get to start talking to first graders about who's having sex with whom until you until you teach them how to read at grade level. How about that? And make it a reward. Hey, look, Johnny can do math at, you know, the second grade level. He's so smart. Okay, Johnny, now I'm going to teach you how to have sex with various multiple partners. Right? You can make it like a reward. What? Why? What? Okay. Anyway, one of the other... Issues that the Observer uh, article here uh, covers is taxes. They do Medicaid expansion and working with the Democratic governor, but whatever. That stuff's not happening. Anyway, the individual income tax and corporate income tax rate are being lowered over several years. uh, uh, Senate leader Phil Berger said he continues to believe that our tax rates are too high. He says, I am comfortable at this point with the step down that we have got with the corporate rate. This is what they said they were doing. This is when Bob Rucho from Mecklenburg, Bob Rucho went there and like Bob wanted to get to zero. He wanted there to be zero income taxes in North Carolina. And they've been incrementally taking that tax rate down and down and down each year because it's more art than science. You don't want to shock the system and blow up all the revenue streams. And so you say, all right, we're going to go a little bit at a time and see what the impact is. And this way they can pause it. If stuff goes haywire, if the economy goes south or something, then you can freeze it where it is and you can minimize harm. AKA conservatism. <laughs> right? That's you move in a conservative fashion when, when, when trying to turn the ship. Right? Anyway, uh, Berger says that he would like the individual rate to be trimmed a little bit more, uh, as long as which is now under five percent, I believe. As long and the corporate rate is uh gosh, where was it? It's, I think it's somewhere around two and a half, I want to say. As long as we continue to see revenue outpace the budget in ways that we had seen, that means clearly we are taxing too much. See, there's a fundamental difference between Republicans and Democrats from an economic philosophy standpoint. Republicans look at budget surpluses and say, oh, our bad. We took too much money from you. (laughs) That's that's their reaction. Democrats see a budget surplus as, oh, look at all this money to spend. See a penny, spend a penny. It's a different approach. It's just a different way of looking at revenue. Um, Berger said that uh, it's something that will be a personal priority of mine to continue to move our rates down. Uh, That was from their press conference they held the other day. Oh, and then there was this. Lawyers for the North Carolina NAACP want the state Supreme Court to, quote, jumpstart action in a case challenging voter ID and that state income tax cap that we all approved 
at the polls by wide margins. Right. So now Democrats, because they lost the seats on the Supreme Court, they're urging the four Democrats on the majority to uh, to force resolution of the case before the Republicans take over. I'll give you details on that beginning next hour. Stick around. Thank you.